This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Study now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. You may be listening to 88.7 for the first time. If you are, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe you've been studying a text of Scripture, you have questions on it, or there's an issue in your life or a theological question. All you need to do is call us. Again, locally, it's 843-525-1859. You can also use our toll-free number. The 877 exchange is the call letters, WAGP 980. When you call, you can simply dictate your question if you don't want to go on the air live, though we do give preference to live callers. And so if you call live, we'll put you on first. Um, You can also email us, and we get just tons of email questions that keep coming every week. And eventually we will answer them by God's grace, unless the rapture cuts us off, and then you won't need answers from me. But if uh, that doesn't happen anytime soon then once your question is answered, we will email you back, assuming you left us an email address to let you know that your question was answered. And we have a lot of people at work uh, very often who are unable to listen to the answer while at work, but they have a serious question they'd like an answer to, and so they email us. And the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. I know, Rick, at one time we had it set up where people could leave a voicemail question. Is that still available? It is, yes. I'll just go ahead and come right into the studio here, and I get a little blinking light, and so it's all good. No, I mean during the week. Yes. They, yeah. So, yeah. okay. So, yeah. So that's another way. And then we'll, if you don't mind, we'll play your voice with your question and we'll get answered that way. All right. Let's go ahead and get started. Okay. We had one question left from last week. A caller thinks it was John MacArthur who said in a sermon that grace and law do not mix. Can you please explain this? Can grace and law mix? Well, I, I know John MacArthur well enough to know what he was referring to, uh, his point. I don't know what he was teaching or what the context was, but obviously what he means by that is that the law of God cannot in any way save you or justify you before a holy God, that we are saved by grace alone, and for that matter, we are sanctified by grace alone. That does not mean that the law of God has no relationship. Um, One of MacArthur's things is he spent his whole life preaching the New Testament. And so uh, he didn't get to many Old Testament passages, but he taught the entire New Testament in his 50-year ministry that he's celebrating. So I have no doubt I don't have his commentary. I have one or two of his commentaries just a couple volumes, but uh, if you go to his commentary on Romans, which I don't have, but I have no, I, I have no doubt how he would handle the text because he's a sound expositor, and you know I hear him sometimes on our own station, and I've heard him in a number of different occasions uh, at different conferences and so forth. So here's what God says in Romans 8 in verse 1 to answer your question in, concerning the relationship of law and grace. 
Now, he's already said in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So he makes it very, very clear. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified that is declared righteous, saved, we might say, in his sight. So um, Paul is dealing with uh, different groups of people beginning in Romans 1.18, and he goes from the hardcore pagan Gentile to the highly religious Jew and everything in between. And of course, many of the Jewish people had developed a spirit of self-righteousness by the time he wrote the New Testament, and they thought that somehow their law-keeping could make them right before God. And so Paul really takes every segment of society that you can think of, and like a skilled attorney, like a prosecutor, he brings forth the evidence in terms of what God says and how they fell short of keeping it, and he basically condemns the whole human race. And so here, to those who would be justified by the law, he says that the law will actually shut your mouth. Every mouth will be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. When we see the law, and even the spirit of the law, I had someone recently in a meet the pastor meeting with me, and she said she felt like she could be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. No, I didn't want to embarrass her, and I didn't. I wanted to be sensitive to her. She was seeking a relationship with the Lord, and she was not born again. So I didn't say, well, can you name the Ten Commandments? Because most people cannot. But I asked her, I said, have have you ever um, lied? Okay, well, you've broken one of the commandments. I said, have you ever really wanted something that was not yours? It's called covetousness. You just kind of, in an envious way, wanted someone else's property or maybe what was true of their person. Yeah, yeah, we've all done that. Yeah, okay. Uh, have you uh, faithfully absorbed absor- observe the Lord's Day, which would be the New Testament application of keeping the Sabbath day holy? No, not always. Sometimes, you know, it's my own day. Okay. Have you ever undressed another person that was not your spouse and desired to have a sexual... Well, you know, Jesus said if you look at a woman to lust at her or vice versa, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Mm. Have you always shown honor and respect to your parents growing up? Okay, you've broken that commandment. And on and on we went. And basically, I guess I can't be justified by keeping the law. In fact, Paul says in the next verse, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law was not given to justify you, but to reveal you. It's like a mirror. When you look into the mirror of God's holy law, you see really how dirty your soul is, and you see that there's a problem. So Paul says, apart from the law, and this is what no doubt MacArthur is referring to, that law and grace do not mix, that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And then he goes on to say that this righteousness that he just mentioned is being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, this principle that you're not saved by observance to the commandments of God. James 2 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. That's how holy God is. It only takes one commandment that you've broken and violated to damn you. But this principle that we're not saved on the basis of anything we do is taught by the law and the prophets. That's another way of saying the Old Testament. And he tells us that the righteousness of God comes through faith. Later on in chapter 7, and let's see here in verse 
7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law evil? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have known about covenant if the law had said you shall not covet. So the law again reveals you. It shows you that you have a problem, whether it's the written law or the law of God written on your heart. And so he then, you know, has affirmed that after dealing with the issue of of condemnation and justification, sanctification, then he comes into chapter 8, and he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. The law could not save you. It could not justify you. Why? Because you have a sinful fallen nature that kicks against it. What you couldn't do, what the law couldn't do through you, God did. How? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. For what reason? Here's the reason. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the law can't save you, but when God does save you, he allows you to fulfill the requirement of the law. And here, of course, by the law, and context is everything. And again, I don't know the quote that you're referencing in reference to Dr. MacArthur, but he is a sound Bible teacher. And on issues of, you know, justification, sanctification, I'm in full agreement. That's not to say that I agree with every single point he's ever made. I don't think you can find two preachers who agree on absolutely every single point. But on all the majors, we're in total agreement. Otherwise, we wouldn't be playing him here on WAGP for some 30 years. But um, there is certainly uh, the ceremonial law of God in which that doesn't apply at all today to the Christian who's under grace because that just pointed to the finished work of Christ. The ceremonial law consisted of shadows that were fulfilled in Christ, and so in that sense, law and grace doesn't mix. But in terms of the moral law of God, uh, certainly you cannot be saved by your observance to the moral law because we all fall short of keeping it. But once you are born again, the requirement of the law is fulfilled in you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and he gives you the power as you learn to rely upon him and as you grow in Christ to obey the the dictates of God's holy commandments. Great question. Let's go on to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on this morning's Bible line, and we just had a caller dictate theirs, they would like you to please explain Revelation three fourteen through 16. And what is being cautioned here, specifically what is meant when Jesus says, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Revelation 3. So the book of Revelation, we have a divine outline to the book of Revelation given in the Revelation. And by the way, that becomes essential and critical to properly interpreting the book of Revelation. And because the outline is ignored, all kinds of wacky uh, positions have people have come up with in terms of how to understand it. But in Revelation 1 and verse 19, and the whole book follows this pattern all the way through, he tells him to write the things that are, uh, that were, that's um, Revelation chapter 1. And so he has had this vision of this exalted Christ, the Lord Jesus, in all of his glory. And he writes about that glory there in the first chapter. Then he says, write the things that are, that's in the present. And so here in chapters 2 and 3, he writes of seven churches uh, that were in existence uh, in the first century. And one of those churches, of course, is the church at Laodicea. Two churches are commendable in terms of their, their practice, 
there are two that are not all that commendable. I mean, five that are not all that commendable. And so here in verse 16, well, let me bring it back. He says to the angel, you could say to the pastor, the word is angelos, and it just means a messenger. And it's used not of only literal physical angels, but also of people. For instance, John the Baptist is called an angelos, same word in Greek. That is, he's a messenger, which is what the word means. His disciples are called angeloi in the plural. They are messengers of the living God. Now, I will say that in many translations of the Bible, even those words describing John the Baptist in their language, they use the same word that's used here in Revelation, and they let the reader figure it out. And so um, we tend to interpret a little bit more in the English text, or if we're not sure, we want to be very conservative, we just somewhat... uh, transliterate the Greek word, and we leave it up to the expositor to figure it out. But clearly, he's not writing to an angel, because angels are not over the churches who can give direction and preach to the people and warn them and rebuke them. He's writing to what we would call the senior pastor. There's a lead person in every New Testament church. We, in modern terminology, call him the senior pastor. So to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, the amen, the faithful and true witness— describing himself from the first chapter, the beginning of creation of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Word spit or sometimes translated spew um, is a rather polite translation. But actually the Greek word is emeo and it means to vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. And so for a church like Laodicea to come into contact with such great truths, with such high doctrine from Christ, having been well instructed, and then to ignore it is really an awful thing. And, and lukewarmness nauseates God. Uh, God doesn't like lukewarmness. I mean, how do you like lukewarm water out of your tap when you want cold water or when you want hot water? Even we don't like it. And lukewarm is a compromised lifestyle. And the Laodiceans were kind of in the middle of the road. They were on the fence. Uh, They were neutral, and it was sickening to God. Basically, they're saying, God, I know that you sent your son to save me, but you really don't excite me. You really don't enthuse me. I'm not wild about all that you have done for me. And so Jesus is not speaking to the out-and-out sinner, the one who is cold, and neither is he talking, you know, to the... um, the agnostic or the atheist, uh, neither is he talking to the on-fire believer who has this blazing, burning passion for Christ, which is what Titus 2 tells us should be true of us. We are, by the grace of God, to be changed. It is to teach us to be zealous and passionate. He is talking about a saved person, a child of God, who is half-hearted, who is satisfied with fence straddling. And that person is described here as lukewarm. Now, certainly there are people who claim to be Christians who appear to be lukewarm who are not Christians at all. But with that said, the fact is is that there are truly born-again people who are in disobedience, and they are really basically mocking Christ's name by their apathy. God hates apathy. He said, listen, I'd rather have you out-and-out hot or I would have you just out now denying me, cold-hearted, against me, 
But when you call yourself a Christian and you're sitting in the middle of the fence, you do so much damage to the cause of Christ. And sometimes it is a true label. Christians can be hypocrites, certainly, without a doubt. Um, You know, there are people who are hypocrites who are lost. And so the Bible uses the term hypocrisy in reference to lost people. And the Pharisees and the great sermon of the seven woes that Christ gives in Matthew 23 are a good example. But also the term hypocrite can be applied to a Christian. Even the apostle Paul confronted Peter, the Bible says, in his hypocrisy. So he's not talking about losing your salvation. The book of Revelation affirms that we are secure. He just said to the church at Sardis, it was impossible. I will not erase your name out of the Lamb's book of life. That's not a verse that is teaching the possibility that you can lose your salvation, but of your security in Christ. And our names are written in the omniscient mind of God because he knows the future in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, and God promises not to erase it. But I'm going to tell you, in terms of your usability before God, and this is what the writer of the Hebrews deals with, about those who neglect so great a salvation. Not those who reject so great a salvation, but those who neglect it. And that's the lukewarm Christian, the the fence-sitter, so to speak, the one who's unwilling to even suffer for Christ, if that's what it means. And there are Christians like that, especially in this day that we live in. Cold-hearted Christians, lukewarm Christians, again, would be a better term. And that's what he is dealing with. But, by the way, that's the short answer. I have an hour and 10-minute sermon on the church at Laodicea. And so if you go to searchthescriptures.org, and if you don't have the phone app, you should get it. Go to the uh, app store, just type in search the scriptures, three words, and searchthescriptures.org will come up right at the top. Download the phone app. And of course, um, we've not yet played the revelation on search the scriptures, but you can still search by book. And the sermons that have been preached to date were about two thirds of the way through the revelation. But the sermons that have been played to date, you can listen to. And I preached in a sermon on each of these seven churches, and I think it might be really helpful to you to listen uh, to the third church that's addressed after Sardis, after Philadelphia, comes Laodicea. So listen to that message and uh, start there. So I think you'll get a fuller answer. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Vince from uh, Beaufort writes, I have a question for you regarding marijuana. I don't smoke it. I don't drink alcohol or do drugs. God has blessed me with not needing to do any of that. I have tried pot a few times, never felt anything, which is good. I don't see anything wrong with pot. To me, it is a natural substance, not synthesized. Some people say it is the gateway drug, but I don't think that. I think that alcohol is. I know that you are against it. Biblically, could you please explain why? Does it have to do with the Bible verse that says, do not, drink, do not drink strong drink? No, it doesn't have anything to do with that verse because that verse is dealing with alcohol. And, of course, the rationale that Christians, so to speak, and I think most of them are self-deceived into thinking that they are Christians who smoke pot, who are potheads. Why do I think they're self-deceived? Because a natural man does not understand the things of this. We're going to hold off on this. We're going to go to the live caller. So hold off on the potheads. If you're a pothead, hang on. I've got an answer for you. Let's go to that live caller. All right. Very good. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. 
Thank you for taking my call this morning. Um, during the last hour, I was listening to this radio station, and the preacher was referencing the judges. Uh, he referenced Jephthah. And a question that I've had, and I've asked many different preachers, is what do you believe actually happened uh, with Jephthah's vow? The Bible says that yeah. he did according to his vow or something like that. And so some will say that uh, God, of course, does not sanction human sacrifice and would never have condoned Jephthah actually killing his daughter. Uh, and so therefore she was made a perpetual virgin in the Lord's service. And others will say, and this preacher said, that Jephthah killed his daughter. So I am just interested in some clarification. All right. Well, let me first say, obviously, God expressly forbids human sacrifice. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 12. There's no question that God expressly forbids human sacrifice. And by the way, that's something we need to hear in our day. We think, oh, these are just raw pagans who sacrifice humans. No, 60 million Americans are missing. 600 million people worldwide are now missing through the shedding of human sacrifice. It's not convenient for me to have this baby, so let's kill the baby. And I don't care if the baby is ground up in an abortion clinic when the child is 12 weeks into gestation, or most recently when a baby is born alive and just in the last two weeks in the United States Senate, there was a bill on the floor to say, hey, listen, if a baby is born via a botched abortion alive, should we give that child medical protection? And let me just say, in the 1980s, there was on average 400 babies a year that were, in essence, uh, the products of a botched abortion. Uh, there was a, a young lady who spoke at a pro-life conference. I know I'm off on a rant here, but this is an important rant because there are some issues even in South Carolina that we need to be alert to and in other states for people who are live streaming or listening after. You need to be alert to some of this abortion legislation that is coming up. But there was a young lady who spoke at a pro-life conference who was the product of a botched abortion. And, of course, um, she's a powerful speaker and communicator, and she has uh, cerebral palsy as a result of it. But nonetheless, botched abortion, healthy human woman. So here in the United States Senate, we needed 60 votes, 60 votes that would say that this child born alive is worth our protection. But we couldn't get 60 votes. Only 53 would say, yeah, that baby deserves our protection. These are wicked men. These are wicked, wicked, wicked men. And they're going to meet God Almighty in their judgment. And, you know, this is an awful, awful thing. So we're doing human sacrifice today. Jephthah, I think, is conversant in the Scripture as you read this chapter. And he could have um, certainly legally redeemed his daughter based on Leviticus 27, 1 through 8. You might want to go back and read that. Or he could give her for perpetual service in the tabernacle. And there's examples of that in Exodus 38. And uh, that would explain her weeping. Uh, that namely, he, he didn't butcher her. He, he didn't kill her. But clearly, um, you know, the Holy Spirit is at work in him. You want to read the New Testament commentary because this is what settles it. You say, well, you know, one preacher says this and another preacher says that. And uh, in Hebrews 11.32, what more shall I say for the time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, 
Jephthah. There he is, same Jephthah, only one, David and Samuel and the prophetess. So God commends him as a man of faith, not as a man of evil. He didn't sacrifice his daughter. So I think the latter interpretation that you heard is the one that is correct based on Scripture, interpreting Scripture. And uh, otherwise, God never would have put him in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Good question. Let's go on to the next one. We're right. back on that pothead question. Yeah. So, yeah, let me go back to that. So, so here's the rationale a lot of Christians are using in our day. They'll say, well, you know, some of my Christian friends like to have a glass of wine. They say it relaxes them. So I just like to have my joint. It relaxes me. Well, number one, they shouldn't be having a glass of wine because it is strong drink. Um, but with that said, why should a Christian be opposed to using marijuana? Well, traditionally, we used to say it was against the law. And by the way, it's still against federal law, and there's going to be a collision between state and federal law. But some states have legalized it. Just because something is legal doesn't make it right. Hillary Clinton said, oh, there's such a small number of late-term abortions in the last 10 days. It, we, we shouldn't be focusing on this. Yeah, only 12,000 a year. 12,000 late-term late, late term abortions a year, those children should be protected. But she, too, is a wicked lady who's going to meet God in judgment unless she repents. And it's very, very sad the day that we are living in. But the government, the federal government, says it's against the law, and it's still against the law right now in South Carolina. And God tells us that we are to submit to governing authorities. So that should enough be a reason if you're in a state where it is not legalized as a Christian to say, I am going to submit to the law. The only exception to not submitting to a law is when that law violates a higher law where like the apostles in Acts 5 or uh, Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace in Daniel 3 or Daniel in the lion's den in Daniel 6 basically say we must obey God rather than men. Here's the hang-up, though, is that now they're beginning to legalize pot. And some states that have done that, of course, have done so with great regrets. But let me give some other reasons other than it is still against the law in South Carolina why you shouldn't use pot. Number one, it's not good for you physically or mentally. Uh, There's no doubt, there's no question. I think maybe four or five months ago I heard a Saturday presentation on our own station, WAGP, and it was a great thing. In fact, I just sent it to Palmetto Family last week. Uh, It was an hour-long broadcast of looking at the negatives of using pot. I mean, there is no question that it causes lung cancer, emphysema. uh, It's it's created, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, what we call COPD, just like cigarette smoking. That alone, and they say the marijuana smoke is worse than that of the nicotine smoke found in a cigarette. Um, lay that aside, uh, it has certainly psychological effects. Listen, I meet these people who uh, are marijuana enthusiasts. I call them potheads. They're spacey. They're often lazy. You can't carry on a conversant conversation because the sharp edge off their mind has been removed through years of pot. What is the greatest commandment that God gave that you should love God with your whole mind? There's the first part of it, your whole mind. By the way, how do I know that's the greatest commandment? Number one, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. You shall love him with your whole heart, mind, and strength. How do you do that? 
And he tells us in Deuteronomy 6, when Jesus is confronted, what's the greatest commandment? He quotes that passage of scripture. So the pothead, just like the buzzed alcohol head, cannot worship God and obey the greatest commandment. Therefore, they're, they're violating one of the greatest commandments in all of the word of God. They're also damaging not just their mind, but their body. And of course, the body is the whole package. And God tells us that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are to um, protect it. Look, just last week, there was an eight-year-old boy that uh, had been hit by a car and it went to court. And this guy who was on pot, they found pot in his bloodstream. They could not charge him under South Carolina law. He should have been charged. I've seen potheads with their impaired judgment. I don't like them behind the wheel of a car. They're an endangerment to you and your family, just like the drunk is. But he couldn't be charged because there was no alcohol in his blood, only pot. That law needs to change. And we've got people in our own state. Every time Senator Tom Davis, let that name ring and reverberate in your mind if you're in Beaufort County. Senator Tom Davis, almost every single time he stands on the floor of the Senate, he gives an argument for medical marijuana. You shouldn't vote for such people like that. That's evil. That's the first step, not to mention there's all kinds of problems with the legislation that has been written that you are going to have a chance to contact your senator and representative on here in the next month in the state of South Carolina. All kinds of problems. And go to palmettofamily.com. That's the uh, legal arm of focus on the family, so to speak. Uh, When James Dobson realizes a 501c3, he couldn't actively deal with uh, political issues. Uh, He and, And there's a lot of political things you can do, but he wanted an organization that would be committed totally to that. So they have a different status. And so the first legal political arm of focus that started... 25 years ago was Pometa Family, and you should be on their email list because when there is a moral issue that is being voted on or an issue that would be of great importance to us as believers, they're going to send you email alerts. If you're not sure how to get on it, call them. All the information is there on their website, and that's the time for you to call your representative. You say, I don't know who my senator is. I don't know who my representative When they send you those email alerts, you click on your zip code. It tells you exactly who he is. It gives you his phone number, his cell phone number. And one call is worth a huge amount. We're going to have an opportunity here in the next few weeks, maybe in the next 30 days. And the, the political realm grinds very slowly up there in Columbia to have our voice heard. But listen, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and using pot damages you mentally. You're you're just uh, you become lazy. You become um, fuzzy in your thinking. You can't concentrate. You can't think clearly. It damages your body. It impairs your judgment. God tells us in Romans twelve one and two, we are to renew our minds. We're not to deaden our minds. We're to renew our minds with Scripture. God tells us in 1 Peter 5 that we're to be sober-minded. Why? Because we have an adversary, the devil, who prowls about. We're not to be so stoned that we don't care. That's what pot does to you. In addition, when you are filled with pot smoke, you're under the control of the pot, not under the control of the Spirit. So that's a violation of Ephesians 5.18, 
But I want to tell you, I'm going to give you, I saved the most dangerous reason for last, and it's found in Galatians chapter 5. Now, the deeds of the flesh of the sinful nature are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Here's the next one. Pharmakia, sorcery. Sometimes, in a few instances, it's translated witchcraft. When you enter into the realm of pharmakia, you are using mind-altering drugs. You are actually opening yourself up to tremendous deception. And let me just say parenthetically, verse 21, after he gives this long list, and on it is drunkenness as well and orgies and so forth, he says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, those who live like this, those who have this as their lifestyle, will not, will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, Mr. Christian Pothead, if you think that you are born again and you are a regular pot smoker, you are going to be a part of that great number that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 7, who claim to know the Lord, claim to be born again, and Jesus Christ will say to them, I never knew you. Listen, when you're born again, you receive the mind of Christ. You have a new capacity to think and understand truth. And if you can't see what is so clear in the end of your nose that it is a wicked, evil thing to smoke pot, then it just tells me you haven't been born again. You've only deceived yourself into thinking that you are born again, and you need to talk to some pastor and talk to the living God about it, I hope very, very soon. But don't talk to an unsaved pastor because he might smoke a joint with you. Let's go on to the next call. All right. Yes. Um, just a reminder, if people want more information on the Palmetto Family Council, yeah. it is palmettofamily.org. Palmettofamily.org. Thank you. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Question is on Exodus chapter twenty-three, okay. verse twenty. Um, is it a representation of the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnated, or is it just another angel? Um, I'll hang up and I'll, I'll I'll listen to your answer. By the way, let me give you a commercial on the Institute of Biblical Studies. The Institute of Biblical Studies can be found at Search the Scriptures, and it's an equivalent to a a one-year Bible certificate. But unlike most Bible certificates that are taught on a college level, this is taught on a master's level. And so one of the courses that we offer is angelology. And um, these are courses where you listen to messages, you have note-taking outlines that are quite extensive, uh, in addition, there are, if you want to take it for credit, there are um, tests that you have to take, papers you need to write. But we have uh, a number of people, and we've never even really promoted it yet because I was waiting to have all 35 hours of study done, and I only have one course left, and that's Old Testament survey. Um, but our, our goal is to launch it officially, though for the last five years, people have been taking courses, bibliology, eschatology, Christology, anthropology, all these different courses. One of the courses is angelology, and angelology is the study of angels, and we deal with different classifications of angels. Every Christian should know the difference between 
a seraphim and a cherubim and the function that different angels have, and they should certainly know the angel of the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord is not a normal, typical angel. He's a messenger in that sense. He's an angelos, but he is God himself. Behold, I am going to send you an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. And so he's speaking of an angel that God would send in advance. And, of course, before Bethlehem, uh, there were certain uh, times when the Lord Jesus Christ would have pre-incarnate appearances, and he's called the angel of the Lord. And, again, in that course on angelology, and I have a whole section devoted to it, it is section 4 of angelology, Um, So if you look at section four of angelology, we deal with the angel of the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord is the one who guards the people through the promised land. And again, the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Christ, never appears as the angel of the Lord after Bethlehem. And in in that course, by the way, I walk through Well, clearly the angel of the Lord is God because he's called God, but then the question becomes, which member of the Godhead is he? And we show how it eliminates that it is God the Father or God the Spirit, that it could only be God the Son. And so uh, here this this angel, um, I suppose this particular angel could have been a special guardian angel, maybe Michael, like in Daniel 12, who's given guard over um, the people of Israel. Uh, it's possible that he is the pre-incarnate Christ, though typically when the pre-incarnate Christ is, is mentioned, the article is used, and it's called the angel of the Lord, but here it says an angel of the Lord. But I will tell you, because I know from the New Testament passages like 1 Corinthians 10, that the angel of the Lord is also engaged in the time of the Exodus and in the time of the wandering, because the New Testament tells us that. But on this particular one, it is open up for a little bit of debate, especially since it's not articular. It could certainly be the pre-incarnate Christ. But what I do in that course is I go through all the passages where there is no debate and where it is clear that this is not just an ordinary angel, but the angel. But remember, Michael, and he's one of the angels we study in angelology, just like we study Gabriel. There's only one who's named the archangel. It's possible there are more, but only one who is named and given that specific title. And his role, according to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, so Michael's principal role is that of guarding and protecting the people of Israel. And he's probably the one in view here since it's not articular. But we do know, obviously, and you can listen to that message on, um, on the Course in Angelology, that the angel of the Lord is also involved in the wandering in the Exodus and in the years of 40 years in the desert and so there are times when he appears as well 
and I go through those in that course. But this one is certainly open up to debate. But since it's not articular, my guess is that it's not the angel of the Lord. And if I were to guess which angel it was, though he's not named, I would probably, if I had to make an educated guess, I'd probably would say Michael. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, very good. Our next caller would like to know, um, they say they have become disabled, (laughs) and obviously their income is less than it was. And so they're wondering if they should tithe on their disability check. Of course, you always tithe what God put into your hand. Now, here's the challenge with a lot of Christians today. They think that, you know, as long as I tithe, that it's a magic bullet and God is going to, you know, help me. And yet very often they walk into the Christian faith with all kinds of debt that they shouldn't have. I'm not saying all debt is evil. If all debt were evil then God could not say in the book of Deuteronomy to the Jewish people, if you obey me, I will bless you. I'll bless you so much that I will make you the lender rather than the borrower. If it were sin to borrow, then it would be sin to lend, and yet God sees that as a blessing that he would confer on the people of Israel for their obedience. So you can't say that all borrowing is evil. But there is certainly a lot of borrowing that goes on today, probably the majority done by the average American, that is just wrong. But we live now in a culture where we don't say, I I can't wait until I save for this. I want it now. I'm going to get it now. You know, and you have all these commercials all the time, and they say, you know, most people just kind of, you know, yield themselves to paying 18 to 23% interest, but you don't have to. You can get a consolidation loan. And the assumption in that commercial is that most people are in credit card debt. And the fact is, is that they are. It was just published two weeks ago, record ever, for the first time ever, 7 million Americans are more than 90 days in arrear on their car payments. Uh, We crossed last year the $1 trillion debt, first time ever, in credit card debt. So I say all this to say that you need to look at the whole package on what God says about money. And God willing, beginning the Wednesday after Easter, I will be teaching my financial course that I've not taught in a long time. I'm in the process of revising it and updating it, and I'm going to commit a week to it here coming up shortly to have it all ready, hopefully, by the time the first Wednesday goes, and we'll go for eight or nine weeks, very, very in-depth on what God says about stewardship, what God says about borrowing money, when is it right, when it is wrong, how do you get out of debt if you're in debt. Uh, You don't really have a plan unless you can tell me the day in the month based on your current status when you will be out of debt. Uh, We're going to look at what the Bible says about giving. We're going to deal with the false myths that tithing is just for the Old Testament era. We're going to deal with the arguments that say, well, the tithe wasn't, you know, 10%, but 13% or maybe even 23%. We'll deal with those myths contextually for those who will try to discourage you to tithe. We're going to look at what the Bible says about investing. We're going to look at the whole package about what God says about money. Now, people say, well, I've read Dave Ramsey's book. I don't have anything against Dave Ramsey, and he's trying to appeal to a secular audience. I have one book by Dave Ramsey, and there are two verses in the whole book. 
See, he's not addressing it biblically. Why? Because he's trying to reach a secular audience. And he's basically saying, here, here are principles that work. And listen, unsaved people for decades, for centuries, have applied biblical principles and have been blessed because there's wisdom in them. But in this current atmosphere, unless you believe that this is what God says and those principles are rooted in your mind because they come from the Word of God, you're probably not going to last and when the temptation comes to borrow when you shouldn't, um, and the temptation comes to tithe when you sh- uh, not to tithe when you should, uh, you will acquiesce. So no, look at someone says, how can you be so cruel to ask that little widow on a pension to tithe to her local church? I'm not being cruel. That's what God says. Do you think God doesn't see that little widow? That God is not going to take care of that little widow? He will. And we need to obey what God says. Now, let me say to this dear caller who's on disability, if you have, you know, all kinds of financial problems, you may want to come to the course on Wednesday nights that begin the week after Easter. It's already off the Internet. We took it down off of Search the Scriptures last week because I'm rewriting the whole course, and I want you to have the freshest Issue and we're we're dealing in this edition with some things that are going to happen. I suspect, unless the United States government takes some radical turns in terms of the national debt, we are going to see in the next five to ten years a total financial meltdown. And what are you going to have to do to be ready as a Christian? We'll talk about such things. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question, Shirley wanted to know why you think Benny Hinn is a false prophet. All right, well, good old Benny. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to say God bless him because um, the Bible tells me not to uh, just give out a blessing without really thinking about it. Benny Hen is a part of what we call the Word Faith Movement. And the Word Faith Movement is an unbiblical movement. It's not really a denomination. It doesn't have a, a formal denominational association or hierarchy, though typically it is centered in uh, Pentecostalism, at least historically, and in many non-denominational churches, people say that, hey, well, yeah, I like this idea of you, Pastor Carl, you're a non-denominational church. And yeah, there's some real advantages to it. When I was a, a, the pastor of evangelism at a large Southern Baptist church in Dallas, um, I had to train the people how to invite people to the church for the simple reason that we were a Baptist church and how do you deal with the objections. So there are advantages, but non-denominational can mean anything. It can mean Kenneth Hagin. It can mean Benny Hinn. It can mean Kenneth Copeland, Paul and Jan Crouch, Fred Price. Those guys are all off their rockers. Those guys are so far from the truth. So Benny Hinn, I did my doctoral dissertation on this. He studied under a guy named E.W. Kenyon, as did uh, Kenneth Hagen. E.W. Kenyon had uh, this metaphysical thought called New Thought, and he got his teachings from a guy named Quimby. And basically, it was mind science. It has some uh, parallels with Christian science and the cult that was started by Mary Baker Eddy. But he basically had this thing, Quimby, and later E.W. Kenyon, name it, claim it. And so what Benny Hinn did, along with Kenneth Copeland and some of these other total wackos, they are not brothers in Christ. They are wackos. 
They have totally deceived tens of thousands of people, and they combined it with Christianity. But Copeland and Hen claim that, you know, God created humans in a literal, physical image of God as little gods, that when we were created, we were little gods, and that before the fall, that we had the potential to call things into existence just by faith, just like God created. But after the fall, you know, we took on the nature of Satan, and they have all kinds of wacko doctrines there. And, um, and so God sent Christ to correct it. And so they say, Hen says that Christ gave up his divinity. He didn't give up his divinity. Jesus is God. He's the eternal God. Now, he did lay aside. That's what the kenosis is about, the free exercise of some of his divine attributes. But when it says he emptied himself, he didn't empty himself of his divinity. But Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn um, say that, yeah, he, and Kenneth Hagen, he gave up his divinity. He became a man. He died spiritually by taking Satan's nature upon himself was then born again, rose from the dead with God's nature. Oh, that's wonderful. They say with the resurrection, he was born again, and now we can become little gods. This is just one heresy after another. It is just terrible. And it's a total um, unbiblical movement. It is based on greed. It is based on appealing to people's need Who doesn't want to be wealthy? Oh, but God promises we can be wealthy, they tell us. No, he doesn't. He doesn't promise us that we can be wealthy. He promises that he will meet our needs. God says that if we have enough faith, we can be healed of any sickness. Hey, listen, one of these days, all these guys are going to die, every one of them. Where's their faith on the deathbed? We're all going to, well, I won't die sick. I won't die of cancer. I'll just die of a natural cause. They have all of their explanations. They grow legs in their healing thing. That is the biggest scam that has ever been done. These legs that grow, these are just lies one after another. They say, you better be careful with what you say because what you say is what you believe and that's what you're going to become. This is just sheer unadulterated heresy. So he's a heretic. He's a false teacher. Benny Hinn is. Kenneth Hagin is. Kenneth Copeland is. The Crouches. These guys are all false teachers, this whole Word of Faith movement. There's a new film that is just produced. I I should know the name of it. I saw the trailer to it for like a two-minute trailer at a pastor's conference I was at. I think it actually comes out officially next month, and it's on American, the, all these fakes, basically, and it uncovers them. It's a pretty long movie. I'll see if I can look up the name of it. Remind me next week, Rick, and I'll, uh, I'll give folks the name of it. All right, very good. Jean writes, I was raised, but not fanatically so, Catholic. Her question is, having been kept at a distance from God's Word, the Bible, and separated by leagues of bureaucrats, namely bishops, cardinals, Vatican leaders, and finally the Pope, from having a real personal relationship with God, will Catholics who do get to heaven be also present with the Lord, but in a distant and bureaucratic arrangement or location? I ask because many Catholics are good-hearted people, they just don't know better, and they believe in this bureaucratic God, Will they still enter heaven when they pass from this world? I don't know. Your last two messages have provoked this question. Thank you for shepherding us with peace and light. 
I'm not sure what you mean. They don't know any better. But if by that phrase you mean, I think it may be they accountability. Know, yeah, they they don't know the gospel. It hasn't ever been clearly presented. Yeah, to them. if they don't know the gospel, if they have not believed that the death, burial, and resurrection period can save you, then they're not born again, and they will not go to heaven. They will not. Now, with that said. There are many Roman Catholics who have come to genuine faith, and they are still in the Roman Catholic Church, and they don't know any better. They don't know that the Catholic Church denies salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, on the basis of Scripture alone, and therefore they are not really glorifying God alone. They're glorifying their church, and in that respect they deny all five solas of the Protestant Reformation. You can believe a lot of wrong things as a Catholic and still go to heaven. You can believe in the bureaucratic mess of Catholicism and think the Pope is God's man and that Mary was a perpetual virgin. You can believe that, you know, there's a a place of, um, well, I, I won't go into all the error that you could believe. You could believe a lot of wrong things and still go to heaven, but you cannot be wrong on salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So God looks at everything that we have, and so when you come to genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are born again, you are a child of God, and it's not like, well, you're just a secondary child because you're a Catholic. No, you're a primary child. God doesn't treat his people in a way that he's a respecter of persons. But God also looks at responsibilities that you have as a believer, and to whom much is given, much is expected. And there are some Catholics who they know enough of the Bible where they know they should leave. Just like this whole United Methodist mess. Let's put it in the Protestant camp. You know, it was only because of the African Methodists that they did not pass this gay blade thing. I mean, that's why they um, were able to keep the original book of discipline and defining marriage between a man and a woman. But, you know, Methodist born-again Christians, they should have left that denomination a long time ago because all the United Methodist seminaries deny biblical infallibility, all of them. There's not one that believes in the absolute authority of the Word of God. And that's why, in practice, you've got all these United Methodists doing all kinds of wicked things. And that's why you have so many Catholic priests, tens of thousands, all the way up into the cardinal realm that have molested little boys that are having intimate relationships with other men because they're lost. They're lost. They're lost, and they've done tremendous damage to the Christian faith. And if you're born again, you should leave a false church. God's Word teaches us that. But again, to whom much is given, much is expected, and there are some people who late in life, they find Christ as their Savior. They're in the last months of their life, and someone explains the gospel and they believe and they don't have good sound biblical teaching, but they have enough in the mercy and grace of God to bring them into the kingdom of God. But you cannot believe Catholic doctrine that denies that you're saved on the finished work of Jesus alone. Listen, if your heart is open, God will get that argument to you. That's that, That's God's bigger. God is bigger than a bureaucratic mess, just like he's bigger than the guy who's in Papua New Guinea who's never heard the name of Jesus. God can get the gospel to him as well if his heart is responsive to the revelation that God has given him. Well, we are out of time. Thanks for joining us today for the Bible line. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. 